Thank you, Justin. This is our first visit to Casper, Wyoming, and it's a beautiful area. I really like the uh, low humidity here, uh, and yesterday uh, we got on a pontoon and went up uh, Fremont Canyon, and that was pretty spectacular, but we're more impressed with the leaders of this church. Friday night, Saturday, we met with the leaders, and you have some very talented dedicated leaders who love the Lord, and some young guys who uh, want the best for the future of this church, and there are some exciting things that they are planning to do for the future, and if I were in this area, this is where I'd want to go to church, and I think you ought to feel very good about the future of your church, and, and uh, I just deeply appreciate Larry and his leadership, and thank you for the opportunity to, to be here. However, I feel like I'm beginning today with two strikes against me. Number one, I'm from Kentucky. And people think Kentucky is a backward state. And number two, I'm old. I'll tell you how old I am. I'm even older than your preacher. And that's about as old as you can be. <laughs> and you wonder if a guy from this old can remember anything enough to preach. I heard about, Larry, I heard about three guys who were good friends for years and did not know that they celebrated the same birthday and one day they accidentally understood they celebrated the first, the same birthday. So I said, we're all turning 50 on the same day, so let's celebrate our birthday together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. I understand they've got some pretty waitresses there. And they did. Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 60, same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got some really good food down there. <laughs> and, and they did. Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 70 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got a wheelchair ramp down there. <laughs> Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 80 on the same day. Let's, let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. We've never been there before. <laughs> so you wonder if a guy from Kentucky, an old guy, can have anything to say. But we talked this weekend about the mission of your church. And the first missions of first part of your mission statement is to seek, to seek those who are lost and bring them in. That's the purpose of the church. So I want to talk with you as a congregation about that mission. I want to talk with you about being contagious ambassadors for Christ. Because if this church is going to be what it can be and reach people and be the influence that you can be, everybody in the seat has to see themselves as a representative of Jesus Christ trying to seek and save the lost. So I want to talk to you about contagious ambassadors. And the key verse, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 11. But the key verse is verse 20, which says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. About a decade ago, I went with a group of Christian leaders in America to China. And while we were there, we had a dinner with the U.S. ambassador to China. It was at the U.S. Uh, embassy in China, in Beijing. It was a very formal, stately, impressive dinner. And it should be because the U.S. ambassador has a key role, especially in a nation where the interests are as vital to the United States as China. So before I went, I did some study about the role of an ambassador. 
The ambassador is a representative of his home country living in a foreign nation. An ambassador is a diplomat who attends the social functions with the intent of smoothing out relationships between nations. An ambassador is an emissary communicating the message that the State Department wants him to convey. And he is a guardian protecting the U.S. interest in the host nation. Now, you and I are ambassadors for Jesus Christ in a country, in an environment that is not always favorable to, to Christianity. And we're to act as representatives of Christ in that increasingly hostile culture. We're to smooth out relationships so that Jesus will eventually be welcomed into the hearts of people who are not familiar with him. And we're to communicate the message that Christ has given us to convey. And that message is that everybody is lost, but God wants everyone to come to Christ and be saved. And we are Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That's the way we ought to, we ought to see ourselves. I heard about an unassuming young woman who was in a new small group, and they asked her what her job was, what her, was her occupation. And she said, I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a checkout girl at Kroger's. <laughs> and that's what we ought to see envision our own lives. Whether you're going to school, you got a job, whether you're in the neighborhood relating to people, you are a representative of Jesus Christ trying to bring people to come to know him. But the problem is, the problem is most Christians do not see themselves as an ambassador for Christ when they leave the church building. They see themselves almost as an illegal alien trying to hide in the shadows and not be detected. And instead of making Christ attractive to the world, we make him almost anonymous. But Jesus said, you're to be the light of the world. You're to be a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So I want you to etch in your mind today, or even better, to write down four words from 2 Corinthians 5 that give us an idea of how we can be the most contagious ambassadors for Christ in uh, this area that we can be. First, the first word is the word transparency. We should be transparent about our intent to evangelize. 2 Corinthians 5.11 reads, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. There's something attractive about a person who is completely transparent. The Reader's Digest carried the following letter. Our daughter is an Army sergeant stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia. She called us during an intensive leadership training course that required her to, sp to spend six weeks at a forest encampment under Spartan conditions. She said, Mom, I've met someone here I'd like to know better, but we aren't allowed to wear many makeup, so he has no idea what I really look like. <laughs> We're so accustomed to wearing masks that make us appear prettier, richer, more successful, younger than we really are. But there's something contagious about a person who has no masks, a person who has no pretense, a person who is totally authentic. You know what we say about those people? We say they're comfortable in their own skin. What you see is what you get. He's for real. 
She's for real. Authenticity is attractive. And the Apostle Paul was an attractive ambassador. He wasn't trying to sneak up on people. He wasn't like an Amway salesman saying, I want you to come over to my house so I get better acquainted with you. You get them over to the house and you, you try to sell them something. No, Paul right up front said, what I am is plain to God. I'm here to persuade people. In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul wrote, we have renounced secret and shameful ways and we don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, Paul didn't bait and switch. He didn't try to water down the message. He didn't say, well, I'm not going to preach from the Old Testament anymore because it talks too much about the wrath of God. We just want to talk about the love and the grace of God. No, he said, I come to you with the whole message of God. I'm just the mailman. And he said, I didn't use any clever or intellectual words to make the gospel appear more intellectual. I just plainly talk to you with plain language so that you could understand. And when people don't understand, it's because the devil has put a veil over their eyes. Let me give you an example of that. In Acts, the 26th chapter, Paul's in prison in Caesarea. And Governor Festus brings him into court and demands that he defend himself against the charge of being an insurrectionist. So Festus and his wife were there. They called in King Agrippa and his wife. There was great pomp and circumstances, and the uh, courtroom was packed with people. And Paul stood up and said, I am not an insurrectionist, but like you, I at one time did not believe in Jesus. But I saw Jesus on the Damascus Road. He knocked me down, and I had to believe, and that's why I'm a Christian. And then Paul looked straight at, at King Agrippa, and he said, King Agrippa, do you believe these things? They were not done in a corner. Do you believe in the law and the prophets? And Agrippa was put on the spot. They said, Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, King Agrippa. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, I didn't want to impose my values on you, King Agrippa. I know your religion is just as good as mine. No, Paul said, Agrippa, I wish that not only you, but everybody in this courtroom would be a Christian just as I am, except for these chains. You see, Paul was very transparent. He was out to evangelize everybody he could. Now, if, if we are going to be effective evangelists, ambassadors for Christ, we need to be authentic about our message and our motive. We are here to convert people to Jesus Christ, and we don't apologize for that. Listen, Paradise Valley Christian Church, your primary purpose is not social justice. You're not here just to provide backpacks for kids going to school or redo houses downtown or do random acts of kindness in your community. Those things are really good. You ought to do those because Jesus said you need to care for the poor and the needy. But don't apologize for the fact that you are here because you believe people are lost without Jesus Christ and they're saved only through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And Jesus said, you go in the world and you share that message. Now, the world might un not understand that. They might say, you're trying to impose your values on me, but we are Christ's ambassadors, and we're going to do whatever we can to persuade men. But to do that, we've got to be authentic. Uh, we got a guy in our church named Jimmy Dan Connor, and that name does not mean anything to any of you unless you're a U.K. fan, and I'm sure in Wyoming we wouldn't have any U.K. fans here. 
I know Justin is a big UK fan. Justin, who is Jimmy Dan Connor? The former Kentucky great basketball player. See, I knew he'd know. Uh, if he just knew the Bible as well as they knew UK history. <laughs> but Jimmy Dan Connor is a member of our church, and he circulates with some elite people in town. I grew up in Pennsylvania on the farm, and I'm not accustomed to that. But Jimmy Dan Connor decided that he was going to be an ambassador for Christ, and he brought four of his friends in the world who uh, play golf at Valhalla Country Club. And then he got four guys from church, including the preacher, and planned a golf trip for one day to Naples, Florida. And one of the guys had a private jet. And so we get on a private jet in Louisville, Kentucky on a cold winter day, and we fly to Naples, Florida, and we play golf with these four guys who are right out of the world. And after we played golf, we ate dinner at this country club and one of the four guys named Glenn, who was very worldly, decided that he was going to impress everybody in the group that he was not intimidated by being around a preacher. So he began to use the F-bomb, every other word, and he told the raunchiest jokes he could tell, made everybody feel uncomfortable. And finally I said, hey, Glenn, I thought it was going to take me two sessions to convert you. I think it's going to take about six now. And everybody laughed a little bit, but it settled down. Then an hour later, we get on a plane to fly back home. We get 2,000 feet up, and we hit a big flock of turkey buzzards. And a couple went right into one of the engines and knocked the engine out, actually completely totaled the plane. And we were flooding around there in the air. It was very nervous. And the pilot dove down and landed at Fort Myers, only about 30 miles from Naples where we took off. And he landed. And we got off the plane. We were all sh shaken up. But Glenn was in tears. He was so scared. He came, and in the presence of everybody, he hugged me, and he said, I am so glad you're on this plane. I believe God spared us because you're on this plane. It's just the providence of God that we're here. And all the guys at Valhalla, then they used that story to humiliate Glenn for months at Valhalla. But a, a few hours later, he asked me, were you nervous whenever the plane was in trouble? I'm tempted to say, boy, not me. I'm not nervous. I know where I'm going when I die, don't you? I didn't say that. I said, you know what? I was a little nervous too. I, I think I know where I'm going when I die, but I want to live to see my grandchildren do this and that. And Glenn later told me that me being authentic with him about my fear gave me credibility. About two weeks later, Glenn telephoned me, and he said, you know, my dad is dying. Would you pray for my dad? And I'd like to tell you, two weeks ago, Glenn was baptized. I'd like to tell you that, but that's not true. We, we've not been able to win him yet, but we're making progress with him. Okay? <laughs> but authenticity. We are authentic about our own imperfections, uh, but we're also authentic about our desire to win as many people to Christ as we can. All right, the second word is the word intensity. If we want to make Christianity contagious, we've got to be intense about our effort to represent the truth. Paul says in verse 12, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all 
and therefore all die. Paul says, if, if you think we're out of our mind, it's because we are convinced we're in our right mind for God. One of the characteristics that is always present in anybody who motivates people to do something is enthusiasm, intensity. Emerson said, every great and commanding movement in the annals of the world is the triumph of enthusiasm. And if you're going to convince people they need Christ, they've got to see a blood earnestness about you. You can't be cavalier about this message. They have to sense that this is vitally important to you. You don't have to be the rah-rah type or be real boisterous, but they've got a sense and intensity about you. And the Apostle Paul was intense about evangelism. In Romans, the ninth chapter, he said, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He was so intense, the governor Festus said to him, Paul, your much learning has driven you insane. And Paul said, I'm not insane, Festus. I'm in my right mind. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. You know what? The world sometimes thinks that intense Christians are out of their mind. In fact, they think you're kind of wasting your time. You're a little crazy to go to church on Sunday morning. And they will sometimes accuse you of having lost it mentally. You know what Joy Behar said about Vice President Mike Pence? Mike Pence said he talked to God. And God guided him. And Joy Behar said, He's mentally ill. Hosea 9.7 says the days of punishment are coming, the days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this, because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool and the inspired person a maniac. Derek Johnson said, truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. And if you're intense about the truth of the gospel, you may be accused of being out of your mind. You may be accused of being a hater. But if the message of Christ is true, that through Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life and a purpose for every day, then if we're in our right mind, we're going to be intense about that. We can't be cavalier with that. Paul said, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Uh, George Mueller was an effective evangelist in the 19th century. He also was known for his great prayer life. And George Mueller kept a prayer journal. And he would write down every day what he prayed for. And then he'd leave a blank space to write in later when God answered those prayers. When he died, somebody examined his prayer journal and discovered that he had prayed for one man who was not a Christian, a friend who was not a Christian. He'd prayed for him every day for 40 years. That's intensity. When was the last time you were so concerned about somebody who doesn't know the Lord, a relative, a relationship at work, that you prayed for them every day for a week, or you stopped and invited them to come to church, or you bought them a book about the gospel. If we're going to be effective ambassadors, there has to be a renewed intensity about us. Here's the third word. The third word is perception. We can make Christ contagious if we're perceptive about the potential in people. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come. How does the world evaluate people? By externals? 
if you're rich or you're very attractive or if you've accomplished some significant achievement, then you're valuable to the world. But otherwise, since they look at the externals, you're not worth very much. The Apostle Paul said, that's the way I once evaluated Jesus. Jesus wasn't very impressive. He didn't have the right education. He didn't have the right credentials. He didn't come up through the intellectual ranks. So I disregarded him, but then I changed my mind. I was so wrong about Jesus because I found out he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And Paul says, the world takes pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, if we're going to be contagious ambassadors, we've got to begin to see people as the Lord sees them, not for what they are, but for who they can become. Who would have ever guessed that Simon Peter, a vacillating, unstable personality, would become a rock-like leader in the church? Or that Saul of Tarsus, a hater of the church, a persecutor, would become the world's greatest missionary? Who would have ever guessed that Mary Magdalene, in whom there were seven demons, that Jesus would change her and she would become the first to witness the resurrection? Or that Zacchaeus, a greedy materialist, would give away half his goods to feed the poor? Or that Nicodemus, a sophisticated intellectual, would humble himself and be born again? Who would ever guess the woman at the well, divorced five times, living with a man she was not married to, would become the most effective evangelist in Samaria? That's the way Jesus saw people. If anyone's in Christ, they become new creatures. How do you see the people you rub shoulders with every day? You dismiss them as intellectual snob, greedy materialist, hedonistic playboy, liberal progressive, drunken slob, or do you, are you perceptive enough to see that Christ can transform those people and make them completely new? If anyone's in Christ, he can become a new creature. The old is gone. The new, is, the new has come. An ambassador is perceptive about people. After I retired from the located church, once a month I conduct uh, retreats for preachers. I bring in eight different preachers, and we spend three days talking about ministry. And one afternoon we take a break, and I take the eight guys to the Louisville Slugger Museum in Louisville, which is number one tourist attraction in Louisville. And they are guided on the tour by a guy named Jack Hillerick. Now, Jack Hillerick is the owner of Hillerick and Brasby, but externally, you would not be impressed with him because he's even three years older than I, and he's kind of a crusty old guy, and he had, had struggled with alcohol, and he's been through two marriages, and his language gets salty. Uh, but I tell you what, as soon as I met Jack Hillerick, I liked him. Do you ever meet somebody in the world you like better than some people in the church? That's kind of the way I felt about Jack Hillerick. And, and we struck up a friendship. And after he would lead guys on tour, he would take them up into his office and he'd talk about leadership from a secular point of view. And the guys would transfer that to church. But eventually, Jack Hillerick asked me to go out to lunch with him because he wanted to talk about he was passing the baton to his son, and I'd pass the baton on to my associate minister. We had a good luncheon, and then a while later, he asked me to go with him to Cooperstown, New York, to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and while we were in Cooperstown, we went out and played golf, and after I played golf, I had lunch with him, and I said, Jack, I want to ask you, where are you spiritually? He said, oh, I think I'm in pretty good shape. I, I'm pretty generous with my employees. I've always been honest, and uh, I said, well, Jack, I'm going to go over the Ten Commandments with you, and when I get finished, I want you to tell me how many you've never broken. 
So I go through the commandments. I get down to about number seven. He says, that's far enough. That's far enough. I admit I've broken most of them, but I'm not ready for that. I, I have a lot of doubts. I don't think I, I don't want to talk about that. So you know what I did? I just backed off. Being perceptive means you've got to be perceptive about where they are in, in their relationship to Christ. And you can't cram it down their throat or you drive them away. So I just backed off. But I knew what was going to happen. I was perceptive enough to see the future. He was living with a younger woman, and I knew he was going to ask me if I'd perform the ceremony if he got married. And sure enough, a few months later, he said, you know, Bob, I'm going to marry Kathy. I just wondered if you'd perform a ceremony. Well, I'm not a minister of any local church, so I don't have to abide by any policy. And I said, I'll tell you what, Jack, I'll marry you if you and Kathy will give me an hour of your time to sit down, I want to talk with you about why you need the Lord in your life and your marriage if you're going to make it. No strings attached. You don't have to do anything. I just wouldn't need an hour of your time. He said, it's the deal. So we brought them over to our house, fed them a meal. I sat with them on the couch, and I opened up the book of Romans and talked about all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if we give our life to Christ, we're buried with him in baptism and we rise to walk in a new life. I went on for about an hour and finally I said, are there any questions? I looked at Jack and he said, I got a question. I said, what's that? He said, when can I do it? I got a gulp in my throat and I looked at his fiance. She said, I'm ready too. We had a prayer together, and the next night we went up to church to baptize them. And Jack's daughter, who had become a Christian, and his son-in-law, who was a really good Christian, and their family came, and Jack was baptized into Christ. And in the changing room, he was on cloud nine. He was just so happy. He said, you know what did it for me? I knew he was going to say that great talk you had last night. That's not what he said. He said, my daughter, Holly, called me two nights ago, and she said, Dad, I know you're talking to Bob Russell tomorrow night. I want you to listen to him because I want you to go to heaven with me when you die. You see, she was plain, transparent about her purpose, and she was perceptive as an ambassador to say something to her dad. He said, that really did it for me. And I've had so much fun the last two years witnessing Jack grow as a Christian. Now, he's not perfect yet, but he's, he went to rehabilitation, and he's in AA, and he's so much more joyful as a person and uh, everybody notices it, and uh, he, he's not quite as salty in his language. He still slips up occasionally with four-letter words, but he's, a, he's got a long way to go, and he's just, in, Larry, I was, had a retreat several months ago, and uh, one of the guys asked Jack a question, and he got fired up in his answer. He said, you do that, you're going to have one, one, you're gonna have one hard time recovering that, he said, and everybody knew. He he'd stopped and caught himself in the word, and it's just so much fun to see him growing as a Christian, but you know what? That happens because we see in Jack Hillary what he can become, not just what he is. Are you perceptive enough about some of the people you associate with? You say, oh, they'd never come to Christ. How do you know? Unless you give them a chance. You be an ambassador. All right, the last word is the word ministry. Authenticity, intensity, perceptivity, and ministry. We can make Christianity contagious if we see ourselves as ministers of reconciliation. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. 
And he has committed us this message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's say that you've got a couple who are friends of yours, and you discover that they are deeply in debt. They're $100,000 in debt, and their house is about to be uh, they're about to be evicted from their house, and their car's about to be uh, repossessed. And you desperately want to help them because you love them, but you don't have the resources to help them. But you've got a rich friend who comes to you and says, I've heard about that couple. I want to help out. I'm going to write you a check for $200,000. I want you to take them this check, and $100,000 is to be paid off all their bills. And the other $100,000 is to give them a head start in their next chapter of life. You could not wait to take that check to that couple. You have this ministry, this message of reconciliation. Now, the world out there is in huge debt to sin. Some of them don't even know it, but they are. And Satan is just poised and eager to make them pay. But God and his love came through Jesus Christ and paid the entire debt on the cross. Not only did he pay for our sins, but he says, if you come in Christ and you're reconciled to him, he gives you his righteousness. You, he imputes his righteousness to your account, and you have a whole new start in Christ. And you've got this message of reconciliation. So we are not prima donnas on a pedestal better than everybody else, and we're not arrogant trying to condemn people, but we come with this wonderful message, be reconciled to God. In Christ, your sins can be forgiven. You, you have the hope of eternal life, and you have a purpose for every day. How could it be any better than that? And you go not as an important person, but as an ambassador of Jesus Christ with this message, be reconciled to God. I've got a son who is a preacher. As Justin mentioned, I've got a son who's a policeman, and a son who is a preacher. We've got love and justice in our home. But I, I, got, I got one son who is in Port Charlotte, Florida, uh, as a preacher. And uh, a year ago in the fall, I went to visit him, and we attended a local high school football game. My grandson was one of the players on the team. But I could not get over how influential my son was with the football team. All the coaches knew his name. He... Uh, in the locker room, a lot of the players know his name. In fact, this year they've made him an assistant coach as a preacher. He's a chaplain. They call him the, the, uh, the coach of player development. But we're sitting in the stands of this football game, and I say to him, Rusty, I, how in the world did you get so involved in the football program of a school of 2,000 when you never played a day of football in your life? He said, it was easy, Dad. I said, how's that? He said, I just went to the coach and asked him, how can I help you? The second time I asked him, the coach gave me a list of four or five things where he needed help. And the hardest thing was every Saturday, the football coach at this big high school was laundering all the football uniforms himself. And I said, Coach, we'll take that off you. So after every game, I go in, I collect all the football uniforms, lug them to the car, bring them to my house, put them in the entryway of my house, fumigates the whole house. But <laughs> some, some, of, uh, some of my uh, friends from church come over and they share the load, and we do the laundry of the football uniforms on the weekend. Monday, we take the fresh uniforms back to school. 
He said, the game was over. He said, come on, Dad, help me. And so I go in the locker room. You ever been in a football locker room? Some of you have never been in a football locker room. You haven't missed much. Let me tell you, it, it stinks. And here we are picking up, picking up these smelly, dirty, stained uniforms. I'm a mega church minister. I'm picking up these old sweaty uniforms, sticking them in the bag. Then we lug these 50-pound bags to the car about 200 yards away. We come back for the second load. We're loading these, putting these things in the bag. The head coach comes by the door and says, Thanks, Pastor Rusty. See you in church Sunday. It's amazing the people you can influence if you're willing to wash feet or uniform, or if you're willing to go next door to a neighbor who's sick, take a meal, or mows grass, or you're willing to say to a young neighbor with a lot of kids, I'll babysit the kids, why don't you take a day off? Or you do something of service. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You have this ministry of reconciliation. If the members of Paradise Valley Christian Church would be transparent, intense, and would uh, be open, perceptive about what people can become, and then serve people. And then at the appropriate moment say, would you come to church with me sometime? Can I talk to you about the Lord? Would you, would you take this book and read it? I think if I came back in five years, you wouldn't be able to get him in this building. I implore you, on Christ's behalf, you be reconciled to God, and then you be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus did not ask us to do something that he did not model himself. We think about how transparent he was. He said, I come to seek and save the lost. We think about how intense he was. He said, the zeal of my house is eating me up. He sweat as it were drops of blood in the garden for us. Thank you that he's very perceptive and he didn't just dismiss people because they were imperfect. He saw what they could become. And thank you, Father, that Jesus didn't come as a prima donna to be served, but he came to wash feet and to be served. Help us to be more like him, that we would go forth from this place to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We pray in Jesus' name.